Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans is an incredible encouragement to me, to the point where it actually makes me happy at times. The truths of the incredible work of Christ in me. So, so for lack of better words, I, I feel these truths more and more. And I am not like this, this emotional, mushy-gushy guy. So I'll explain that. that. That is that when they come to mind, when these truths bear in my mind, I can actually feel peace in my life. And I think that's what God's word does for us. It, it's a calm confidence, a calm, soothing confidence. It's not a cockiness because life would just beat that snot right out of me. It's, 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 it's a calm confidence given by the word of God in the middle of madness. I mean, think about what we just went through last year. A lot of people are saying, don't mention last year. I think we should learn from last year. What we might be going through this year, all of the, all of the social unrest and the, and the political craziness and the cultural craziness that's going on all around us, it's a calm confidence in the word of God and that God is in control and the truths of Christ are not complicated. You, you would think they're so uncomplicated, you would think the gospel would get old after a while. I mean, but, but the amazing thing is, is that it never does because it's God's truth implanted deep in our hearts. And I'd like to encourage you this morning, especially you young people, to realize that the message of Christ the message of Christ is, is not just hype. This is not made-up stuff. All right? It's really, really true, and it's alive and active and powerful, and it should change you. It should work in your heart. If you turn in faith and trust in Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, it should transform you. It should take you from a life of depravity, and work you through righteousness and holiness to become like Christ. That is the work of Christ in you. If you truly let it change your heart, you will never, never wear it out. There may be times when it loses its luster compared to other shiny things that might pop up in this life. But they will be just moments of your life because the truths of Christ are really, really exciting. And, there, and there's nothing in this world that compares to the glorious Christ. There is nothing in this world. Christ is forever. This world is just a vapor. Your life is just a vapor. Our passage this morning is really so calming and so encouraging to me. I mean, this is, this, is, this is precisely what it's designed to do, to bring a calm and comfort from God to the believer's life. We see in the previous chapters in Romans, leading up to chapter 8, how God's great work has been bringing us to Christ by faith in Christ alone. And we can clearly see that through all of the deep theological and doctrinal truths and pillars that Paul just lays out and the arguments that he lays out through all of this deep, rich theology. But perhaps what we don't see so clearly are the conflicts and trials many of us face after we're saved by God's grace. There can be, there can be conflicts which, which affect the deepest recesses of our hearts. 
not just the outward lives, our physical lives, but, but if we're honest, many of, us would simp- many of us simply are not prepared for all that would go on in our hearts. We may look at others, we may look at ourselves and think we're okay, but there's stuff that will happen in our lives that affect us to the, to the most of our inward being. And listen, there, is, there, there are constant battles being waged against us, against believers against those who truly trust in Christ, against those who are in Christ. Some of these battles attack the outside, some of them attack the inside, and some of them attack both the outside and the inside together at the same time. In this passage, it's like God through Paul is sitting us down as believers and saying, just stop for a minute. Just stop for a minute. He's trying to encourage and teach us so that we can face this stuff with a measure of confidence, a measure of calmness in Christ. Joy and peace because we're going to face this stuff until the day we die. So look with me here at Romans 8, 26. By the way, my introduction is really long. I know there's a lot of points. Um, Real quick, before I go on and read this text, is there anyone that didn't get sermon notes? Can you raise your hand? I've got some guys ready to jump up. There's some hands up. Can you guys grab those? The sermon notes actually look pretty long, but trust me, when we get to them, we'll move through them pretty quick. I put a lot down on this paper, more than I normally would. But as they're handing those out, let's read this text this morning. Romans 8, starting at 26, we'll read down through verse 30. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Most of us probably know the famous verse 28, right? All things work together for good. And we, we probably slaughter it a little bit because we know it so well. And a lot of people take this out of context and it drives me absolutely nuts when they do that. But what a simple but huge, massive, powerful truth it is. I want to think about all things work for our good in terms of the life of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Turn with 2 Corinthians 4.8, if you have your Bibles. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4.8 with me just for a brief time before we really dig into Romans here. Paul describes his life here as being afflicted and pressed on every side. He says in verse 8, 2 Corinthians 4, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. That is, he had bad stuff just pounding him from every single direction. He's basically saying, I'm being squeezed, I'm being pummeled, I'm being crushed into little tiny pieces with no place to escape. I can't get out. I'm completely surrounded. I'm pressed by trouble from every single side, every direction. But it wasn't enough that he had bad stuff coming at him from every single direction, right? 
Because according to the verse we just read, verse 8, these bad circumstances were very perplexing to Paul. I am perplexed, he said. This bad stuff's happening. It's perplexing to me. That is, I'm at a loss. Paul could not see the here and now what the good was in this. I'm at a loss. So if we were to ask Paul, Paul, what do you think? What do you think, Paul? Um, everything's going to work out for good here. Every, everything, everything, everything's working out for good. So, so how, how is this going to turn out for you? How in the world would all this trouble that you're going through turn out for good? Paul would have looked right back at us and said, I'm at a loss. All right? I'm at, I'm at a loss. We often want to know why. Why are we going through this trial or that trial? If we were to ask Paul, Paul, why did you just get tortured? I'm perplexed. I'm at a loss. I really just don't know. In fact, in fact, as to the specifics, Paul indicates that he really had no clue and, and, and wasn't okay with it. He was actually perplexed by this. Everything, every, everywhere Paul went, he was hunted down. All right, let's think about Paul. He experienced true, tremendous persecution for his faith in Christ. Problems and trials followed him around like a pack of bloodhounds. I couldn't think of a better way to illustrate that. All right, but everywhere that guy went, boom. I mean, it just seemed like you just read in Scripture, look at the book of Acts. I mean, this, this guy just had problems. He had run-ins with people, left for dead, arrested, imprisoned, tortured, mocked. It, it was like he's, he's just like, he's like a fighter who takes takes blow after blow after blow in the ring, and then just one final blow to the face knocks the fighter to the mat. Paul's saying, I'm dazed, I'm hurt, I'm not feeling good. I don't feel like I'm overcoming, I'm down. But thankfully, here in, in Corinthians, Paul doesn't leave us with this mental image. He says that he was afflicted, he was pressed from every direction, but not crushed. Not crushed, perplexed, at a loss, but not in despair. He didn't sit there, oh, woe is me, I don't know what's going on here, I'm, I'm just going to give up. In fact, quite the opposite. The idea is that we do not give up and quit. As, as children of God, people who have put their faith and trust in God, and we have Christ in us, we do not give up and quit. We are hunted down and even attacked, but God never, never abandons us. We are knocked down, but we get back up and we keep going. So in verses 26 through 30, I believe there's a simple way to describe what God is telling us. And if you go back to Romans, if you're not there, I, this is my key point. I wrote this on the top of the notes there. It is this. As we look at our lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I may have gotten that from Clint Eastwood, but when we look at our lives, all right, that is the pressures surrounding us, trials, hurts, disappointments, health issues, financial issues, things that knock us to the ground, or, or it could be success. Maybe, maybe it's something good that happens with us. What God is saying to us, to every true believer, his children, is that everything, get this, everything will be 
all right. Really, it'll be okay. I know you were expecting some huge, monstrous, theological, phraseological thought, but that is really the main point of this text right here in front of us this morning. It is such a simple, yet huge, and extremely powerful truth. Everything will be all right. And we can see this in our lives as believers. When we mourn the loss of someone, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't weep and mourn as someone who has no hope. When my dad passed away, Thanksgiving week, 2001, on a Monday night, these verses were incredibly precious to me and my family. As we, as we gathered together and we mourned and we grieved the loss of our earthly father so unexpectedly, we could look at each other with confidence saying and knowing everything will be all right. We may undergo persecution. We may undergo trials. It is not outside of the realm of possibility that as believers in Jesus Christ in our lifetime or in our children's lifetime, here in the United States of America, we may have to stand for our faith to the point where we are executed. There are believers in the world right now, in this very second, who are making stands for their faith in Christ and being persecuted for their faith in Christ. It is not just a persecution like, ha, 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 Christianity is funny. Those are real trials. And those believers can take this passage of Scripture and know that everything will be all right. Just that simple truth has so much power and impact in our lives. Last Wednesday, I spoke at a funeral um, for, for someone who, in our church who asked me to speak at a funeral for a loved one. Um, had to experience, we're all going to experience someone passing away if we haven't already many, many times in our lives. But as, as the family gathered together and everyone was crying on everyone's shoulders, I really don't know how it sounded to a lot of them, but I just know it's true for the believer. And as I interacted with the ones that were there who I was confident have faith in Christ, I was able to put my arms around them and tell them basically everything. I'm so sorry for your loss. This is a tough time. So sorry. But it will be okay. It'll be all right. Really, really, really. And it's true because we are told right here in this text that is true. Look at verses 26. Let's anchor this. Let's begin walking through this text this morning. Verses 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We're talking about our weakness here. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in verse 27, we see that the Spirit of God is the one who is at work. He's always interceding for us. What an amazing thought. But then in verse 26, we back up. He's always there helping in our weakness. So my first point this morning is the Holy Spirit embraces our weakness personally. This is an incredible comfort to my soul. And it should be to yours. The Holy Spirit embraces our weakness in a personal way. Simple but powerful truth. 
People react to weakness in different ways. Many times people don't know how to answer for their weakness. Many times people recluse. They don't know how to talk about it. The natural tendency is to withdraw and say nothing when you're going through a hard time. And, and there's, there are times of weakness that actually scares or, or repels or disgusts people. But here, here, we are told that the Spirit actually comes alongside of us and engages us. And the idea is, first of all, and here we're going to walk through these notes pretty quick in some places, all right? The Spirit is never repelled by our weakness. Instead, He is attracted to us in our weakness. The Holy Spirit is never repelled by it. Instead, he, he comes alongside us. He's attracted to us in our weakness. So the reason we can say everything will be all right, and it's true, is because secondly, the Spirit is always there for us. Always, always, always. The Spirit is there for us, even when we are at our very, very weakest. Verse 26 is telling us that when we are at our weakest, lowest points of life, God's Spirit is present, ever present to help us. And then verse 26 goes on and tells us that even when we don't know the best way to ask for help, the Spirit does. And He goes to work on our behalf. This is so cool. So cool. This, mean, this means our weakness never repels the Spirit. It never annoys Him. It never disgusts Him. It never disappoints Him. He is always there to help. It always it also means that he never looks down his nose in disgust at where we end up emotionally, time and time again and again and again. But in the midst of tragedy, trials, and tough times, the Spirit not only embraces us in our weakness personally, but also, verse 26 goes on and says, that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So, not only is the Spirit never repelled by our weakness, and He's attracted to us in our weakness, and the Spirit is always there for us, even when we are at our very weakest, but also the Spirit constantly expresses our needs perfectly to the Father. Constantly, without end, never stops expressing our needs in the most perfect, clear concise way to the Father. Think of it like this. When we face huge trials of life, most of us don't have the slightest clue what to say. As I was stood there at the funeral on Wednesday, man, I, you talk about just lack of words. Nothing seems to help. Right? And that's the point here. It is that the Spirit does know, and He goes directly to the, to the Father on our behalf so the reason why we can have this confidence is because the Holy Spirit who is with us, in us, constantly expressing perfectly to the Father. Theologically, let's think about the theology of the Holy Spirit just for a second. I'm not going to go down a huge trail here, but we know that the Holy Spirit is everywhere at the same time, right? He's part of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's part of the Godhead, omnipresence. There is not a single place in the entire universe where the Spirit is not infinitely present. That's a huge theological truth about the Holy Spirit. But another one is that in a special way, the Holy Spirit indwells 
us. All right? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But here, write this down. I didn't put this in your notes, but I think this would be worth writing down. Here, in a very effective way, the Holy Spirit is near and at hand. The Holy Spirit is near to us and at hand. So let's think about this by looking at the groanings, too deep for words that we see in 26. Whose groanings are these? Anyway, are they our groanings or are they the Spirit's groanings? And one thing is certain, these groanings cannot be uttered or spoken. Very clear in the verse. They're literally, groanings too deep for words literally means unuttered groaning. Or signs that baffle words. Like, what in the world does that mean? The only thing I could really think of, just trying to think this through, is like, like what does wow mean? Anyway, wow. Can someone give me a definition of wow? All right. Like, like it actually means something, right? It, it has a significant connotation because, because it's connected to an expressive sound. Wow. Or how about whoa? Could be, I mean, what does whoa mean? Woe is me. Um, Whoa, I messed up. I just stepped in it and I'm in big trouble. Or you come up on the Grand Canyon, you don't see anything, and you, you walk up towards the ridge and it all opens up and you just go, Whoa. Paul is speaking about signs that baffle words or words that are unable to be spoken. Some say these groanings are man's attempt to speak to God through inarticulate groans, but it seems obvious that it's the Holy Spirit who's groaning here. So, so who's groaning, us or the Spirit? Well, I think, I think the honest answer is yes, okay? That, and I say that, let's just dig a little bit deeper here. Let, let's think about it this way. It's not that we need the Spirit to take our words and go tell God what we're trying to tell God because we can't, because we're going to mess up the message or request, right? I mean, we can definitely mess it up. We are human beings. We get up in the morning to mess up. And we mess up all day long. And we mess up in the things that we say and in the things that we do. I mean, we just, we mess things up. But God's still going to get it regardless. It's not like he needs help understanding what we're trying to say or understanding his little creation. God's going to get it. The idea is that the idea here is that your needs, your struggles, plans, fears, hurts, frustrations, and discouragements really reach beyond, beyond our ability of clear verbal expression. We just don't have words to express. They, they can cause us to groan on the inside. So the spirit groans with us. He is near and at hand. Think about this for a second. The Spirit groans with us. That is powerful. He takes our emotional passion and fear and perfectly conveys it to the Father in perfect harmony with the Father's will. The end of verse 7. Jesus, when he arrives at the scene of Lazarus' death, sees Mary and Martha grieving, primarily Martha, or Mary, excuse me, in John chapter 11, it says that Jesus groaned within himself. Jesus groaned within himself. 
So when tragedy or trials strike, God is telling you that you can be confident no matter, no matter what you are facing in life as God's child. You have the Holy Spirit within you, near and at hand. You have everything you need, and you will be all right. Really. Because God's Spirit is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-wise, and he lives in you constantly interceding for you. That is powerful. What an amazing truth. He never is off duty. Our deepest inexpressible emotions, he is able to convey to the Father perfectly on our behalf. This is not some mere clinical repetition of facts or details that I'm talking about here. This is the Spirit is right there in the trenches with us, going through it with us. But not only is the work of the Spirit powerful and alive in us and for us, but also, my second main point this morning, the Father is actively intervening in our lives. And we're going to march down into verse 28 here. He is always active in our lives, always. So as believers, first of all, we should be aware of God's activity. We should have a constant awareness of God's activity in our lives. Verse 28 should read, it's better translated, we know that God causes all things to work for our good. The idea of of we know that God causes, the idea of we know is that of awareness. That is, we we are aware of it to the point where we can virtually feel it or even see visible results from it in our lives and in the lives of other believers. And this is, a, this is a strong reference here to God's working in our lives. So, we should be aware of this activity, but we should also know that God is always active in our lives. God is always, always, always active in our lives. He never quits and he never rests. All right? The active tense of the verb here is, this is happening now, right now, and right now, and right now. And if I were to walk all the way over here, it's still happening right now. And is it happening now? Yes. And is now, 10 minutes from now? Yeah. God is always there. He is always actively involved in our lives. He is always active and intervening in our lives. He is never passive. He's never a spectator. And and we know this truth. We're aware. We have this awareness of this truth. Every one of us that is a true believer, we have this awareness. That's why Paul starts out, verse 28, we know. All right? If you're a believer in Christ, you know it. You know. Paul Paul is saying that God in his infinite wisdom, power, and authority is always doing what is best for you. But he's not just suggesting that everything that happens is good. All right? So first of all, we should be aware of God's activity in our lives. Second, God is always active in our lives. He never quits. He never rests. He's always doing it. But third, and I think this is very important for us as believers, not everything that happens to believers is good. 
And we'll dig into this just a little bit here. But not everything that happens to believers is good. We may look around and see believer Johnny or whoever and all the good stuff that's happening to them say, why don't I have that? Why am I going through this trial? Why aren't they going through this trial? Why, why is this? Why is it that? Why do they have this? I don't have that. Why, why do they get to have that beautiful house and, I don't, and I'm living over here in poverty? Why, 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 why? And again, Paul would go back and say, it's perplexing. All right? But not everything that happens to a believer is good. The truth is, some of it is horrific. Injury, death, separation, abuse, being battered, illness, disease, rape, incest, bankruptcy, loss of job or employment. Maybe you lose your house. Maybe you lose everything you have. This stuff happens, and it happens to Christians. This stuff happens to even the most spiritual Christians, the ones who spend their whole entire lives living for and serving God. Bad stuff happens. We don't have to look farther than the New Testament to see pastors and missionaries. Whole entire churches have been destroyed by horrific sin. Bad stuff happens. So what about these verses is good? I mean, what about, what about these events? Not verses, sorry. Everything about these verses is good. What about these events? is good. Nothing. A bad event is a bad event is a bad event. Nothing about this stuff is good. However, God is so great and so good and so wise and so loving that he can command such events to operate in such a way that they work out for, his great, for our greater good those who are his children, only God could pull that off. And this is such an encouragement to my heart. So no matter what is happening to you, it could be the unspeakable. Something you don't even know how to express with words. The Spirit does. And God is using that in your life right now. For your ultimate good. It is as if God is saying to us here in this text, I am God. I'm your Father. I know. I know what you're going through. And I will make this happen for your ultimate good. If you are my child, one whom I love. You may not see it, or feel it right now, but he says, I am doing this now. And then as he steps back to give us a glimpse of the bigger picture and says, and I've always been doing this. I have always been doing this. This is part of who I am. I have an eternal purpose and plan. So my third point this morning is the Father has a always actively intervened and always will. The Father has always actively intervened and he will always do so for all eternity. Please understand this this morning. Paul wants us to get the bigger picture. That is, there's something infinitely larger and more powerful going on than, than man can see or understand when it comes to salvation. I believe that is why Paul includes this larger theological statement about God's great salvation 
In verses 29 through 30, let's look at this. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that we, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In these verses, Paul is taking us through a theological journey, a theological timeline of the order of salvation from God's perspective. And I think it's important that we understand this because man's perspective of salvation often differs from God's perspective of salvation. We are often very narrow in our focus when we think about salvation or really anything because we have very finite minds and hearts where God wants us to step back and look at a much broader picture here, at his infinite greatness in salvation. So it's important for us to understand that every, every event, every, acti- every, every, every activity we see in these verses in the whole salvific timeline is intentionally stated in the past tense. I'm not going to debate God's sovereignty and salvation this morning, but I will preach to you what this says. All right? Paul intentionally put this in the past tense. Every one of these, foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, and glorified in the past tense. And that, is a, that has significant meaning. So first of all, from God's perspective, every event of salvation is a done deal. All right? It's a done deal with all certainty. That is my greater point here under my third point, subpoint. From God's perspective, every single aspect of salvation is a done deal. 100% certain. And we can clearly see this as Paul talks about how God knew us from eternity past. This is the whole idea of, of foreknowledge. Look at these verses again with me. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Foreknowledge is not, is not that God simply knew about us for, from ever ago. From eternity past, God did know about us. But this has, more of a, this has more of a relational connotation to it. That is, God actually knew us in a relationship to his son in the past. But that's, not, but that's not all. Grammatically, this, is, this idea of foreknowledge is, is closely tied, really inseparable to the next activity, which is predestination. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Literally means, predestination, predestined literally means marked out beforehand, appointed beforehand, or determined beforehand. The idea connecting these, these two activities is that God actually knew us in a relational sense, marked us out and determined us ahead of time that all who would be his in salvation would be made like his son, Jesus Christ, a long time ago. Probably should go this way. For me, it's this way. Um, that's an amazing thought. So in time, he called us and he justified us. In these verses, you see, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to this, keep this train moving here. I could park here for a long time. This would be fun, all right? But you, you, you can see that here. There's a, there's a, a sequence going on, and, and we need sequence. Um, 
because we are creatures of time. We need that sequence and we need that chronology in us to understand anything. But God doesn't need what we need, does he? He's God. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So, so as Paul listed these events, he also mentioned that God has strong past tense glorified us. Now, I want to think about this. If we're glorified and this is it, we're in big trouble. I'm standing right here preaching God's word to you this morning. And if, I, if, th- if this is my glorification, ouch. I mean, I love you guys, but really? But in the heart and mind of God, it's done. That's what Paul is arguing here. It's certain because it's part of God's finished comprehensive salvation package. One day we will stand face to face with our maker and our faith will be made sight. And that will be forever. And when God looks at us in all of this, foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified, he sees that. It's done. Paul's saying, listen, the ultimate great outcome of all things is in God's predetermined plan. It's a done deal. In the heart and mind of God, it's complete, it's eternal, it's certain. I know, I, if, if Paul were speaking, he would, I think he would say from this text, I know we are still waiting, but it's done. I may be perplexed at what's happening with me. I may not, I might be at a loss I don't see it. It's happening now. I know. I'm confident that God is working in me here and now for the greater good of all eternity for me. It's done. So, let me ask you this morning. If salvation is locked up this tightly in the heart and mind of God, what chance is there of it being undone? There is none. No chance. It cannot happen. Zilch. There is nothing that will ever change God's mind and heart when it comes to his children. There is, there is nothing two weeks from now that God will say, okay, never mind about Phil. It is done. It is certain. Our glorification is sealed in the heart and mind of God. And we need to realize this. My final point this morning, nothing, nothing, nothing can change God's mind from actively intervening in every event of salvation. Nothing can change God's mind. Our hearts want to believe, right, that the good guy always does win in the end. I mean, we love the happy endings to stories and movies, right? Yeah, we do. I mean, we love that stuff. I mean, believe me, it sells movies and it sells books, right? But listen, in real life, it doesn't always turn out that way before we die. But God says for us this morning in this text, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. 
It really will be. I have a, I have a predetermined plan for you. You may not understand it right now, but for your ultimate good and glory, trust me. He tells us here, I exist in eternity, past, present, and eternally in the future. And I'm telling you, here's the deal. I am, always have been, and always will be ordering every circumstance that comes to your life. I will order it. I force it. And I cause it to cooperate together for your ultimate benefit and good. You may not Again, understand. And God does. He knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. And he tells us not to worry. And I think it's a good reminder for us. We know this is true. But we need to be reminded of how precious God's love toward us really is. I think of Joseph and his brothers in the Old Testament we could go through illustration after illustration from Scripture and from even our own church family, all three through church history for that matter. But I think of Joseph and his brothers. You know the story in the Old Testament. His brothers threw him in a hole, could died, sold him into slavery. I mean, this was bad stuff, right? Bad stuff happens. God had a plan for Joseph and his brothers. Years, years, and years later, we know, how, we know how the story ends, so I'm not going to go through the whole story, but years and years later, his brothers are standing before him. There's a famine in the land. Joseph recognizes his brothers. His brothers don't recognize him because he was young when they threw him in the hole and sold him. They come to Joseph for, they not come to Joseph, they come, they come for help, and Joseph stands before them as a leader in the land. And his brothers get scared. He's like, listen, God. You meant this for evil to his brothers, but God meant it for good. We can see God actively intervening in the lives of Esther and Ruth. I mean, we can just go on and on, right? Jeremiah faced tremendous hardship, and what did God say to him in his hardship? He said, I know the plans I have for you. They are plans for peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Jeremiah 29, 11. I don't know what you are facing this morning. I know we have tremendous trials and hardships in our church body. I know we have illness in our church family. I know we have even recent deaths in our church, affecting our church body. We know these truths. And not in some wishful way, but in fact, concrete fact found in the heart and character and the nature of God. The only one who is. So we can say for real, no matter how awful any part of my life is, I can put my arms around a grieving friend who just lost a child and say, no, this is not a good thing. I am so sorry. but it will be okay. It'll be all right, really. Sometimes I wish I had the power to remove the hurt or take the trials away or the illness away, 
That would be an amazing power to have. But at the same time, I step back and I realize that God is forcing these circumstances into your lives and into your hearts. And he's doing it for a reason. He's forcing these circumstances to work together for a future good. And he's doing it right now. And our trials may not make us, they may not make any sense to us until we get to heaven. But take away this from this morning. Heaven is forever. And heaven is glorious. Most of us are facing some real trials in our lives. We don't even know how to verbalize them. We, we, may, we may, as I said earlier, before our lifetimes are over, face tremendous trial and persecution as believers of Jesus Christ. We have seen in the last couple of decades a tremendous move in our society and culture. I have lived in a society and culture of, of, of persecution of Christians. And I'm not sitting here this morning to scare you, but I see our country this close. It's real. And it could be very real. And it could affect you in the most personal, bad way before you die. But everything will be all right, really. Because underneath these promises, we have the strength of the everlasting, all-powerful, all-wise, all-knowing God holding us fast as we just sung about before, and we can never ask for more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the work of salvation in our hearts. Though we face trials and hardships, though we face hard times in our lives, and we face things that are bad, Lord, this morning we have a calm peace and confidence because of the promises of your word an understanding and a knowledge and an awareness that you are working in our lives and you are causing these things to work for your honor and your glory forever. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by this text, knowing that no matter what happens to us, whether it's something good or something bad, that you are in complete control, that your sovereign hand never leaves us that the Holy Spirit is in us and interceding for us and he is near and at hand in the trenches with us that you understand what we are going through and that you are causing it again for your honor and your glory and for our greater good forever. Lord, please let us encourage our hearts this morning and take it away from here. Lord, help us to grow and learn from your word, in Jesus' name, amen.